Hello and welcome to the season finale of the Extreme Cinema Podcast. I'm Alexander Sternberg and with me as ever is Dom Loach. How you been, Dom? I'm very good, Sterny. How have you been doing? I've been doing okay. I mean, suck. Season finale. I know, I can't believe it. Season finale, season two. <laughs> <laughs> we got there. What a year this has been. And uh, we are going to end with a bang, I think. Oh yeah, this is going to be a big one, guys. Probably a very long one as well up there. Yeah, uh, strap in because this is uh, the second Extreme Cinema Podcast special. And um, similar to our French New Extremity special, which was our mid-season finale, you know, we just had so many uh, of David Lynch's films on our potential to-do list for the podcast. Because, I mean, a lot of them could be counted as extreme cinema, like a yeah. Razorhead, Blue Velvet, Fire Walk With Me, Wild at Heart, uh, Lost Highway, all could be done. And you just sort of think, well, we're just going to spend the whole episode talking about David Lynch, so why not do all of them? And then if we're going to do all of those films, why not <laughs> just do everything that man has ever done? Yeah, I mean, one of our favourite directors, I mean, your favourite? My favourite. Yeah. My absolute favourite. Used to be my favourite, um, is still up there, number two probably, but he's unbelievable, and there's so many films that fit into this stick, like, could go on this, we were just like, why the hell not? Do them all, even if all of them aren't in the extreme cinema area, just do them all. Yeah, I, I will I will not let an opportunity to talk about the Elephant Man, like, go. No, no. <laughs> and it's Straight a... Story, and all oh, of those. <laughs> so fucking good. I mean, man has a hit ratio of, like, you know, one of the all-time greats. I did a kind of rough letterbox list a year or so ago of, like, oh, here's a hundred of my favourite movies. I mean, they're all really rough. Like, I, I couldn't tell you my hundred favourite movies for yeah. certain. But Lynch was by far the top director. I think the only director who came close to him were Hanukkah and Carpenter. I think there was about five David Lynch films on my list. Yeah, it's not even my number one director, but I think he might have more in the top 100 than Linklayer. I'm not sure. And certainly one of the most influential directors ever. I mean, Lynchian. Lynchian is one of the most yeah. commonly, probably too commonly used, you know, cinematic words. And people know, I mean, they don't, they know David Lynch and synonymous with weird, but like David Lynch is in the mainstream. I mean, post oh, yeah, Peaks, hugely, absolutely. Yeah. That post Elephant Man. Yeah, yeah. Is it hugely influential and... Just everything is. I mean, obviously, Twin Peaks was this big hit that everybody ever knew about. That was, that was one of the biggest TV shows ever released, especially in America. I wish I was there at the time. I mean, we got to be at the time for Twin Peaks: The Return, which we will, I mean, definitely talk about. Yeah, we uh, will. <laughs> he's just—he's so cool, and he's so kind of idiosyncratic, and he's so—he's uh, just a charming man to listen to speak. He's so. Uh, he is. What's He's such word? a troll as well. <laughs> he is. Uh, there's so many good videos of him. Like the, one of the funniest videos online is in the press for Inland Empire when Mark Kermode's sort of trying to talk about like electricity as a motif in his <laughs> films and he's like Mark Kermode's just like, you know, am I somewhat correct maybe? And Lynch is just like no. Which is hilarious because he told Commode before that as well that he was onto something, and then Commode brought up and that, and he said, "No, it's just a <laughs> such a troll of a man." Like... That's hysterical. Well, um, speaking of David Lynch's trolling, I think Dom, <laughs> we got to start off with uh, his most spiritual film. This is my, this is my <laughs> most spiritual film, you know. <laughs> oh, would you elaborate on that? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So yeah, Lynch uh, initially studied painting, um, started making quasi-animated films, and got you know a bunch of grants because people very early on recognised his talents. And he spent about four years making uh, what, in terms of, if you were to call this an experimental film, um, this is probably the most influential experimental film ever made. It's... Yeah. Definitely the most, I mean, maybe uh, but other than that, the most experimental surrealist film ever made, certainly of the modern era, or, okay, not the modern era, but, you know, certainly post-1950s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is, of course, Eraserhead. Uh, man, 
I, I went to see this in the cinema for my birthday uh, last year because I will use my birthday as an excuse to drag my friends to watch a razor head in the cinema. <laughs> uh, and I turned to my girlfriend after we finished and she was like, I hated it. And I turned to my other friend and she was like, I hated that too. But you know what? I fucking love this film. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> I don't know how you could hate it. But also, I obviously know how you could hate it. <laughs> I, I think, I mean... Everything about this one's so influential. Um, the it really introduces a lot of a lot of things you're going to see from Lynch, like the post-industrial landscape. Both, yeah, big time as well. Like both in in the visuals and also the soundtrack. And we're going to talk about Lynch's soundtracks. I think for like every other film on this <laughs> list, um, which he composed himself. And it's like in its own right that's super influential in industrial music and heavy metal, which is insane. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, what do you say about Razorhead, honestly? Like, it's one of the most influential things ever, especially on the art movement in film. Man was creating this on a stupid amount of time ago, and it's like something that could have been released a year ago. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it, no, it, it is it is timeless and, and unique. I mean, there's a lot of influence in sort of Richard Iowardi's The Double. I remember, like, noticing yeah, that, yeah. that world was really similar. Um, and it's just horrible. I think one of the main theories about the film, because everything is so ambiguous, is that it's set post-nuclear apocalypse. Yeah, um, it's very... That is kind of the vibe it gives, almost. I mean, everybody who's listening to this has probably seen a razorhead. It's one of the like, you see this if you enjoy weird cinema. That's it. Like, it's it's kind of the starting point, and it's, it's amazing um, how much it hooks you in. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's very slow, but the cinematography is so good, and um, it's really funny. And this yeah, was like when I took yeah. my friends to see it. They were like, I did not get that this is a black comedy. And I'm like, this is hysterical. How do you not see? It's because it's the horrific. The dinner scene is absolutely hilarious. Like, the <laughs> first few scenes are so funny. Like, <laughs> even, even the baby, it's just like, like, there's that, when the baby's sick, it's just like, the baby's, well, normal. The re reptilian <laughs> mutant baby creature's not normal. But, you know, it's just going about normal. And then there's a hard cut. And Jack Nance, who, you know, has been in so many David Lynch things since, is like, oh, you are sick. <laughs> and, and the, you know, most, if not all, this film is a nightmare. Like oh, absolutely, an actual yes. nightmare. And Lynch really captures dream logic, I think, in a way that even um, Louis Brunel didn't do quite as well as David Lynch did. Um, Brunel is probably Lynch's biggest influence, at least... Um, overtly i know lynch has talked about like the wizard of oz being his ma his major influence uh and lynch is obviously really influenced by a lot of like classic americana um but that feeling of being stuck inside a dream that you literally just can't leave uh no one has done that like david lynch has done uh and eraser head for fucking 1977 oh boy it it's it's incredible and like you said it could have been made yesterday yeah, absolutely. It could have been. It's, it's, it's hard to talk about like all of the stuff you're saying because it's what what do you say about Razorhead? Who's <laughs> just somebody who's not seen it? How would you describe that movie? And like, if you had to go along and be like, "Oh, this is a Razorhead," like, <laughs> it's like, I mean, what it is is David Lynch's own personal nightmare about becoming a father before he wanted to become a father. That's literally oh, yeah. what it is. And it's told in a nightmare, possibly post-apocalypse, possibly it's all a nightmare. Uh, you know, Lynch refuses to even hint at what the film's about. Uh, whereas sort of Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway, Lynch is like, there is a, this is about this. Uh, not that he will say what it is, but for <laughs> a razor head, it's, it's really left after interpretation. Like, you know, is the man with the levers, is that God, is that his sex drive is that his brain what the hell's the deal with the literal eraser head 
later <laughs> on the woman in the radiator singing in heaven which again that song in the soundtrack it's got its own place in popular culture outside of um, yeah yeah that's so eraser. big out of even people who don't know Razorhead know the in heaven song like <laughs> i feel like i feel like this one kind of baffled me when i first watched it like um my own personal journey with lynch um i i think uh i saw the elephant man first which is just brilliant and you don't yeah, need to watch yeah. any other lynch film to know that saw june which we'll get to um i saw Mulholland <laughs> drive which i loved like instantly loved but the first time i watched the razorhead the first time i watched blue velvet it left me a bit like these are good but i'm a bit nonplussed and it was only when i saw twin peaks that like the like key into like the david lynch lock kind of turned i was like oh i get it now i get what he's going for and um there's this david lynch tone which so ahead of his time and no one does it with the subtlety that lynch does it where it's ironic but it's not ironic you know yeah i know what you mean like it's presented tongue-in-cheek almost parody of itself but it's actually not, but it's meant to be sincerely watched. Like, David Lynch is a very sincere person. And it's kind of like a hyper-reality, like all all his films are. Like, this is horrific, but there's this layer of black comedy in it, which is quite funny. But ultimately, even though it's like the, the comedy kind of brings a smile to your face while watching it, you're still feeling the horror. And that is present in, like... Blue Velvet and all Twin of, Peaks yeah. and Wilder Heart. Just like, I mean, I'll name all the films. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and this this is, um, in terms of that tone, it's a little harder to get your head around in this um, than it is in Twin Peaks, which everyone, you know, people got Twin Peaks. Yeah, but, people um, got Twin Peaks, yeah. This was, you know, an infamous midnight movie. Uh, people went to it. I think a lot of people went stoned to it. It's it's mental and it's really effective like one of my friends when i went to go planning the cinema trip for it was like i've seen it i'm not watching this film again it's too disturbing <laughs> like genuinely like it's 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 a very affecting movie it's completely surreal and it manages to be engaging despite sort of being very slow like it's sort of 10 minutes of walking in rubble is the second yeah, scene especially this yeah yeah would you call Eraserhead his least accessible movie, or would you give that to Inland? Oh, by a mile, Inland Empire. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think everyone should watch Eraserhead. I think Inland Empire is the only one of his films I would be like, never under any circumstances watch this unless you <laughs> love David Lynch. Like, everyone needs to watch Eraserhead. Like, you just have to. If you're into film and you've not seen Eraserhead, what on earth are you doing with yourself? Um... Whereas Inland Empire, you you need to be a hardcore Lynch fan to like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. What do you what do you think without? Because we'll do a special, so we're not gonna do heavy spoilers. Yeah. But yeah. what do you think this is about? Because it's obviously the nightmare of you know becoming a father before his time, but also the thing with the the man with the levers and the wall putting up and coming down and everything i've i've seen online the theory that he is like repressing like his entire past because it's so traumatic yeah um, i've heard so many different interpretations and stuff out there so it's honestly it's hard to get your own ideas into a razor head anymore <laughs> like like it yeah. is with some of um lynch's stuff obviously the heavy like you said fears of um having a child and everything are in there and quite obvious if you think about it just I don't even bit. think you need to think about it like that no just, no it's it's clearly and then if you know it's a nightmare or that most of the film is a nightmare yeah, yeah. then you've kind of you will understand the film on its surface level like no problem and that's why I think you can still be engaged through it literally on that surface level and the technical, like, prowess. I mean, this was an incredible feat. Like I said, it took four years to make. And this is one of the very few cases where you can make a proper autorist argument. Oh, because Lynch yeah. really micromanaged this film. Not out of obsession. Not that he isn't an obsessive director. But out of it was a no-budget movie that took four years to make. Like, there's a bit in one of the audio commentaries on it where... Uh, 
I think it's when uh, Jack Nance's character is talking to the neighbor and he walks into his flat and David Lynch is like, there is a two year gap in between him being outside <laughs> in the hallway talking to the neighbor and him being in his flat. So like the sets and everything Lynch like basically design knows himself. Like Lynch talked about there's the gunk in the drawer and like Lynch yeah. was making that himself from vanilla pudding and whatnot. So this <laughs> is one of few films that you could really make an argument being like, this is made by one person. It's not because no film is ever like that. Fully unless made, of course yeah. it's a, a Neil Breen film. But <laughs> the mad lad. <laughs> the only auteur. But it's like it's as close as you could possibly come. Yeah, it's a it's genuinely genius and we have a lot of Lynch to talk about. <laughs> We've already gone on for so long on a razor, but it it warrants it because it's his first one. And it's just an unbelievable movie. For uh, this is this guy's first movie. Like he makes everybody look horrific. Like it's it's I, unbelievable. I, I didn't even think about it like that. Like this is of course up there with Citizen Kane, yeah, Reservoir yeah. Dogs. You know, I I don't even know first films better than this. I think I've just listed. The, the ones, only yeah. one is better yeah. than Citizen Kane. Yeah, that would be about it. Like, and this is obviously such a influential movie in the opposite sense of how it's so out there and so one guy's mad genius on full display. In terms of post-apocalypse, the depiction of it, it's really unique. Yeah, yeah. From an aesthetic point of view, it's very obviously post-apocalyptic like that would be where the interpretations all come from because of the insane like walking through rubble scenes and everything that you see and then just the the weird dinner scenes and everything like that just kind of scream almost insane post-apocalyptic kind of stuff that's going on so it's the most like it's not fallout it's the but you, you could you could see it though as just like a really weird depiction of like run down American estate as well. Like you can kind of see it on that level. Like Lynch, a lot of the like classic American, you know, house in the suburb, uh, family unit. That's all. That's always in Lynch's sort of line of sight in his films, in both a nostalgic yeah, way yeah. and a cynical way. Um, so you see that in Eraserhead as well. So I don't think the first time I watched this, I went post-apocalypse. I just went, this is a very weird way, but it's ve this is a very weird, surrealist look at America. Which yeah, every definitely. everything he's ever done is virtually. That's the thing, I can't... I've, I saw this film so long ago, as so I can't even really remember my initial interpretations or anything, but I don't know if I even straight away was like, yeah, post-apocalyptic. It might have just been... This is just a weird bit of America with a weird family doing some weird shit. Like, and uh, as you know, this is the extreme cinema podcast. Without spoiling it, the ending is horrific. The ending is horrible. Yeah, <laughs> like it gets that's brutal. not funny. Maybe yeah. it's meant to be funny. In fact, it probably is meant to be funny. You know what? But probably. wow, it's disturbing. It's very disturbing, and um. We should probably move on from a razorhead. I think we, we have, have to because we have a oh while my... to go. Uh, so, Eraserhead becomes the biggest cult film and the biggest surrealist film, and the one of the, the in art cinema circles, I think almost indisputably the most influential film of the nineteen seventies, which yeah. is saying something. Just a little, yeah. So then, one of his fans, Mel Brooks, helps get his next project off the ground, which is. Uh, Lynch is most mainstream film, won many Oscars. Lynch was nominated for directing himself. Yeah. Uh, it's an absolute goddamn fucking masterpiece of a film uh, in my eyes. And it is The Elephant Man. Um, it's, yep. it's a masterpiece. And it's like one of the most sincere and humanist films ever. Yeah, I'd say so. And it's... It's an odd line because he goes from a razor head to this and it's so different and so humanist. And so it's obviously about John Merrick, the real guy. So it's a, a 
biopic as well, and it's so different and (laughs) there are a lot of similarities though i feel because everyone kind of goes like and anyone could have directed this you know not oh no no bollocks like you've got he's instead of this like american like falling industrial scape you have like britain like firm industrialized victorian britain yeah and like the alienation of man and machine is like such a theme in this in the background as well like uh in like one of the first scenes uh, the surgeon by uh, trees by Anthony Hopkins is, you know, fixing up someone who's been horrifically mangled in a machine, and he's like, "These machines are terrible. You can't reason with them." Like, yeah. and you know, people are treating John Merrick like an animal. They call him the, the Elephant Man, and he's treating him like a human. But then the film kind of goes back round on itself and being like, "Is he uh, rescuing this man who's got, um, you know?" these these disability which has been exploited by a freak show it turns back and looks on trees himself and why is he helping him is he also exploiting him can like how could you not um and the directing like the angles the lighting the black and white it could only have come from lynch but you have these really like incredible powerhouse not weird very realistic performances Perhaps career best from Anthony Hopkins, which is saying something. Which, yeah, <laughs> just um, a little bit. <laughs> I would say, without a doubt, career best John Hurt, which oh, is very much. Yes. I mean, these are two of the greatest actors of all time. Yeah, John Hurt's performances. This is one of the most unbelievable performances ever. It is absolute powerhouse. Like, and we're talking about John Hurt saying John Hurt's best. I mean think of the incredible things he's done and this is something else it's it's not just the physicality of the performance and he's acting through the makeup like he's acting through this heavy heavy layer of makeup but you you pick up like every ounce of emotion that he has and the way his character starts is kind of broken and like completely guarded and how he's sort of slowly breaking down um, these guards to reveal, you know, to show a real personality, you know, the humanity inside him, because he has been alienated from society, being treated yeah. like the Elephant Man. It's, it's beautiful. It's properly beautiful. It's, it's like, it's depressing, but it's, it's so up at times, but it's so uplifting as, as a film as well. It's, it's one of, it really is in terms of a film that can provoke like really powerful emotions. It's it's like at the top, like beyond any sort of technical aspect of it, it's a very powerful film. Yeah, very powerful. And I, my story with this, this was the first Lynch I ever saw. And I saw it in Same. my GCSE drama <laughs> my, um, class. And it was um, put on by our teacher to show us the ridiculous performances in it, obviously. And it's it's such a weird thing to think that a lynch film could be shown in gcse drama but it is so so powerful and so good i think i was like 10 when i first saw this i think uh like i was saying to people like i think the first time i started taking film a bit more seriously is i got like a free six month love film subscription back when they sent dvds from the post yeah and i just used that to like here are all these classics i've heard about let me go get them through the post so i I watched it with then uh, I don't even remember if I knew who David Lynch was then. I may well have done just, and his films are meant to be weird. Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely mean, had no idea who Lynch was when I first saw this. <laughs> anyone can watch this. Anyone should. Oh, yeah. I mean, people, everyone probably probably has. It got re-released in cinemas last year, which is, I, I went to see it in the cinema, and it, it's just, it knocks you away on the big screen. It's a, it's a masterpiece of directing, and it's got... Because people always say it's normal. It's got all the weird David Lynch dreams. Oh, it's got in some it. weird bits in there still. The whole uh, elephant and the mother bit as well. It's very, um, very out there. It's like, it's mythology of how the elephant man became the elephant man. But it's obviously not serious. He's obviously yeah, not yeah. actually wanting to imply his mother got stomped by an elephant. And that's why he looks like this. But it's creating uh, that mythos. Um, around him as like this is what people think like um i think one of the genius genius strokes in this film is like the first half hour before you see john merrick 
it's shot like a universal monster film, especially the first scene. Um, you know, it's got these long shadows, black and white. It's clearly uh-huh. got a lot of influence from like Todd Browning. And um, it really turns that on its head um, by the end. And it's a shame that when this film came out, the initial marketing was like, oop, want to see the elephant, man? You yeah, have to go yeah. watch the film, yeah. which is, I mean, it's not Lynch's fault. I'm sure he had no control over that, but like the hypocrisy is insane. It defeats the entire point of the movie to advertise it that way. Um, it's a shame almost that David Lynch for his features never worked in black and white again, I don't think. I mean, this is yeah, uh, no. beautiful. Because he does his first two in black and white as well, and then... I mean, I consider this a masterpiece, and there is a subset of David Lynch's fans who not don't like this, because I don't think anyone in their right minds doesn't no, like no. The Elephant Man, but there's a subset that don't really take this very seriously, and, like... I can see that. Like, I could see why it's obviously it's such a dumb idea, but I could see them being like, this is less Lynch than they yeah. love their Lynch. Like, Basically, like, oh, you ain't seen real Lynch. This is as real yeah. Lynch as it comes, folks. And, like, uh, if you think otherwise, you're being pretentious, stupid, and you can't understand subtlety. Exactly. Just wait till we get to June. Then I'll... <laughs> well, I think we're about to move on, unless you have anything more to say on The Elephant Man. How was um, the portrayal of John Merrick in the film? How does it relate to previous portrayals of him? Because you, you would know about this. Yeah, but um, very... Obviously, it's a lot more human than a lot more portrayals of John Merrick has ever been. It's a fantastic um, way because, as you said, the marketing for this film is how John Merrick was usually marketed and just seen in pop culture before this. Um, Obviously, he was a real guy who did freak shows, got pulled into that stuff, and then... um, ended up being a speaker at some stuff and it was um it's it's probably one of the better like um depictions of freak show culture in general like there's a lot of films about it and there's a lot of media out there and it's the least sensationalized which is saying something like <laughs> because uh, Lynch's stuff is kind of sensationalized a little bit in the way that, like you said, it's not supposed to be taken seriously, but the whole his mother was stomped by an elephant crate and everything. But the way then, like you said, after the first 20 minutes goes away from creature of the month kind of thing and makes it a very human performance, it it helps a lot and it is probably one of the best depictions of it out there. I think I the, the I would say that when bites comes back and um starts like the whole conflict in the third act when he goes when Merrick uh, goes away again yeah uh, yeah that didn't happen in real life and I, I no it think didn't it's, no yeah I I do think it's it's really upsetting and I do think it might be a little unnecessarily upsetting considering that didn't actually happen and if they didn't introduce that conflict the film would be no worse for it yeah um, it was definitely creating some some big conflict there just to add something else to the movie it almost feels like studio interference it's like it almost does even yeah. though I, I don't i would have no probably idea wasn't no um but then you get the scene in the uh in the toilets of the station which is i mean one of the best acting moments ever by the way um before we move on to you i just want to say i'm not gonna i'm not being hyperbolic in this episode you're gonna hear a lot of from both of us best of all time it's david fucking lynch he's done a lot of that he's done so many best of all time so and we've not even got to my favorite movie so we've got a while which is obviously june Oh, that just wait till June. <laughs> well, after the Elephant Man, David Lynch is is firmly like the hottest director. I, again, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I mean, the Elephant Man, tons of Oscars, award claim, yeah, incredible reviews. Um, it's loved by the public. I mean, so much. It's a real hit of a movie. I mean, every single person 
listening will have seen it. And if you haven't seen it and you're kind of our age and you're millennial or Gen Z, I guarantee your parents have seen it and probably saw it in the cinema. Absolutely. Like, it was massive. So, you know, he's already being tapped to uh, do Return of the Jedi, which thank God he didn't do. Oh my uh, God, yes. <laughs> but he does a really big uh, film next, which he's kind of sounds perfect to do. And he has the worst time ever on it. And he's interfered <laughs> by the studio and he has his name taken off the film. So it's directed by Alan Smithy when it comes out. The Blu-ray yeah, does say David Lynch. I think there's differences between what release you have if it says Alan Smithy or David Lynch. Alan Smithy, for those who don't know, is the uh, director had his name taken off. So that's the that's that's why they what put, you put yeah. on it instead. It's like um, John Smith. Uh, nom Laguerre, I believe, is the term. And that is June. He takes over Alejandro Hodorowski, so we're taking it back to the first of this new uh, second half of the series, was going to direct June. He was going to make it 10 hours and absolutely insane. <laughs> and it was the most pre-production, expensive pre-production fucking ever at the time, like millions on pre-production. And then the studio got cold feet about letting this madman um, <laughs> do, you know, sink their studio with this. So they give it to David Lynch, but you know, it's a big, big, big sci-fi blockbuster. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it it was a different time. Not every single big film was a tentpole release, as we call it now, whereas now it really is. But this was a tentpole release. It was huge budget. And the film is a complete mess. Absolute mess. <laughs> It's not as bad as people say, because it has a reputation. I mean, it genuinely has a reputation of being, like, dreadful. Like, you look at, like, the reviews, I think, Sistel and Ebert's review of it. Yeah, time. yeah. It really was sort of hailed as, like, an all-time turkey. Yeah, I... I don't like this film. It's not, it's not the worst ever. It's still got some Lynch charm in there. And it's Kyle MacLachlan's first showing with Lynch as well, so... It's decent. I just, it's just such a mess, isn't it? Like, it's such a mess. <laughs> yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> and there's no other way of doing it. I think, I mean, the cask is great. I mean, Patrick Stewart's really good yeah, in it yeah. as well. Carl McLaughlin is a good Paul Atreides. I haven't actually read the book, but like, I like him in this film. I think the production design is outstanding. Um, And the production design may well as amazing as Villeneuve's was which Villeneuve's is an actual science fiction classic in yeah. my opinion um the production design in Lynch's is so out there it's very like prog rock album cover that it might be better because it's like no one else has ever done a science fiction film that looked quite like this probably because this film was a gigantic failure <laughs> no that is the greatest thing about this film by far is the production design um McLaughlin is a good polytraist. It's my favourite book of all time. I've read it many times. So you could probably tell why I'm not a big fan <laughs> of this um, film as well. Well, this, the storytelling is, is garbage. And yeah, this really absolute strikes garbage. <laughs> I, I, this is probably a result of the Lynch studio um, clash. Because, like, it's so, so poorly paced. I mean... It takes, it's like two hours and a bit, and it takes like an hour 50 to get nowhere, and then ends <laughs> just so quickly. It's, uh, what, kind of what were they thinking, honestly? Like, it's, uh, you can tell that Lynch just was battling the entire way. Like, and thank God when we get to it much, much later down the line that he never let the studios interfere with Twin Peaks like they wanted to. <laughs> Well, they they did in a way, and I think I mean, well, season three isn't, but we, we'll oh, season three. Well, we'll get yeah, to yeah. Twin Peaks later, obviously. But I mean, the thing is, I would recommend people watch this because of the production design, because of the score by Toto. Uh, yeah. that's kind of it. But that's good enough to make this a recommendation. I'd say it's like a really mediocre film. It's a mess. I wouldn't call it bad. I think you would. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I'd probably call it bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I still do think people should watch it, especially if you, if you just want the full Lynch experience to see everything. You you gotta watch it once. The the like Harkonnens are so batshit in this, and I f Sting in his like <laughs> Sting is so good. With I the, actually like, love Sting in this. 
is so mental. Like, uh, that's like such a like weird David Lynch thing. Um, I had the party recently and I put this on in the background just as like, you know, <laughs> something on the background. Because I was like, what's a good film to watch on mute? Uh, and I put this and then I put daisies on after it. And uh, uh, makes sense. people <laughs> occasionally would turn to the television and go, what the fuck? <laughs> Why is Sting there? Like, <laughs> um, the thing is, it convinced me, it tricked me into thinking it was a good film. Because I've seen this film on mute like twice now. I've just realized <laughs> this. Like once I put it on at my party and the other time I was in a bar in Berlin and they had this project playing and they were playing, it was muted and they were just playing Dope Smoker by Sleep in the background. So when you watch it on mute, that it is... tricks you into thinking it's like a masterpiece. That might be the best way to watch that movie I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Dope Smoker by Sleep. Everyone go listen to it. Uh, yep. But it's, yeah, on mute it's great. But like, yeah, the script sucks. The storytelling is dreadful. It's a mess directing wise you know it's got some incredible things like the opening where uh, the princess is fading in and out to give exposition i love that as yeah an it's pretty it's pretty clever it's pretty decent but it's it's a mess it bombed like water world level bombed yeah bad bad loss of money there that very understand lynch's reputation with the general public a little <laughs> Thank God, because this is the most necessary thing to happen, because Lynch had... Oh, absolutely, yeah. Lynch had such a terrible time, he's like, I'm never doing a big, big studio. studio film again. Yeah. I'm going back to doing my own shit. And then goes away and comes back with one of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah. Again, not hyperbole. Yeah, um, definitely. Reunites with Carl McLaughlin in one of his best roles. Not his best, that would be Twin Peaks. That's Twin um, Peaks, yeah. <laughs> and... Yeah, wow, Blue Velvet. Where do you begin with this? Because like Everybody Eraserhead, this ever. is one of the most influential American films of the latter half of the yeah. 20th century. Every human that's ever talked about movies in some kind of internet forum has talked about Blue Velvet. It is. Everybody talks about the performances, and rightly so, because it's unbelievable. Everybody talks about the themes and the... The it's kind of subtle way that the themes are done, but also not really so. All of like the seedy underbelly of the white picket fences. It's it's unbelievable. It's the like, psychosexual, like sadomasochistic, like darkness in it that's just so hair raising. Because like, yeah, it he it's not just like I mean the seedy underbelly is so like obviously explored in the opening or like you know what it's about, but like yeah, you've got yeah, this yeah. like noir film that David Lynch just really turns really ugly, um, especially in the second half of this. And I was lucky enough to catch this in the IMAX recently, the BFI IMAX, because they put it on as part of the uh, Sight and Sound Top 100 Films season at the BFI in London. And watching it on the big, not just the big screen, but the biggest screen, <laughs> I was like, my hairs are on end. It's so powerful. Yeah, I mean everybody knows the scene. Like <laughs> they um there's there's multiple scenes. There's obviously I mean lots of people I know have basically refused to watch it because the portrayal of sexual assault in this yeah. is really disturbing. It's really disturbing and sadomasochistic. And Dennis Hopper, this is such a prime example of that Lynch tone of the like it's not there's a level of irony there's a level of dark humor but you're meant to take it seriously and you do like he is one yeah. of the scariest villains he again i'm gonna say it horrifying over time. absolutely horrifying in that role like could you imagine anything else anybody else doing that no just because it's that well horrific. you know the story of how he got he got the role as well i don't think i do no that he had seen the script and he messaged Lynch or wrote to him as you did in those days yeah. um, and said, I have to play uh, Frank Booth because I am Frank Booth. And Lynch was like, I was torn because on the one hand, I wanted someone like that to play the role. But on the other hand, I didn't want to ever meet anyone like Frank Booth. <laughs> exactly. Like, somebody's messaging me saying, yeah, I'm like Frank Booth. I'm never speaking to that human again. <laughs> Yeah, Hopper's terrifying. It's also the first role of Laura Dern, I believe? Or is it one of the first roles? Uh, it's the first, yeah. 
Or is Smooth Talk the first? Oh, maybe. Maybe. It's, yeah. it's one of her earliest roles. Um, she nails it. And you've got the dichotomy, because Lynch loves his du- dualities, uh, which you're going to see time and time again in this yeah, film. I mean, yeah. it's it's looked at an elephant man a bit. Um, there's a duality of, you know, man and animal and whatnot. But she is this sort of, you know, the all-American girl next door is contrasted with um, Isabella Rossellini's character, who is like this she's kind of portrayed as a seductress on the surface and then as the layers are peeled off very quickly very very quickly it's like the levels of trauma this woman has suffered like she's the black-haired one and uh laura dern is the pure blonde one and that comes across on david and like every other lynch thing we're going to talk about yeah this yeah, is so... in some way basically um it's it's amazing that this, yeah, neo-noir film set in the American suburbs has so many layers to it um, in terms of its portrayal of sexuality, uh, in terms of its, you know, deconstruction of Americana. Um, and then it's brutal. It's got that aspect to it that he's, Lynch is taking the gloves off. Yeah. And then on, so. the, on the surface, it's a great mystery film. It is. That is. It is just a great mystery film as well. Which, when you talk about Blue Velvet, is overshadowed a lot of the time with the hyper sexualized violence and everything that everybody knows this film for, and they they kind of forget that aspect of it a lot. Which I I can understand why because yeah. holy shit is is some of this brutal. I mean, the imagery. It's not just the the ear in the field is really palpable. Yeah, but... yeah. I think the in dream sequence, which is my favorite scene in the film, um, I don't think I'd ever seen anything like that when I had watched this film for the first time. Like Jesus Christ, it's again that tone of not serious, but you're going to feel it seriously. Um, yeah, definitely. It's the- it's surrealism at its best. Is this the film where Lynch falls in love with the saxophone as well? Is this the first one? <laughs> uh, it's the one where he falls in love with his soundtracks, that's for certain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's his first collab with Angelo Badlamente. The theme from Blue Velvet is a classic. Oh, yeah, yeah. And not even... I mean, I think if you're going to talk about Badlamente and Lynch, we'll, we, we'll get to it in a second. We'll get there. But, <laughs> like, of all the iconic stuff he's done, it's, it's up there. Um, it's up there. It's not quite Twin Peaks, but the score is phenomenally good. The opening, you know, it reminds me of a a very old fashioned film. The way it opens, oh, and Lynch always yeah. has that like fifties aesthetic going on. I mean, Twin Peaks. Um, when I watched that, I first for three episodes, I thought it was set in the fifties, and then there was a <laughs> Mac, a MacBook later on. And I was like, "What the fuck? <laughs> what is happening here?" Like Lynch's portrayal of America is always, you know, it's always a deconstruction of of that aesthetic. You know, the white picket fence, the muscle yeah, cars, yeah. the you know, family unit, the 2.5 children and all that. Lynch always wants you to know that everything is actually fucked up and nothing is normal. That's that's his entire shtick. But it's not just that is the thing, because obviously that is what, like, most Lynch, Blue Velvet and Post Blue Velvet and A Razor Head is about. But there is, like, a genuinely, like, nostalgic element to it. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, Lynch is... This is what I mean by the tone. He's cynical, but he's not like that cynical. There he's is not a level overly of, cynical. No. This is nice. Like the the Robin at the end of Blue Velvet. There's a large debate about how ironic this is meant to be, and you know what? I don't think it's like ironic at all. Really? I really don't. I I think Lynch kind of is like, hey, they can live like this now, and even though there's the underbelly they're going to get on with their lives fine, and isn't that all right? Yeah, I don't think he's a full-on cynic like some directors out there. I think he does have... He has a lot of humanity in his films, is a thing. Like, you've seen it first off in Elephant Man a lot, and then you see it throughout a lot of his stuff, like, especially going into Twin Peaks and everything. It's incredible going from... I mean, Blue Velvet 
is a fairly niche piece of art. Yeah. It, it managed, you know, it's 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 a relatively big film, but this is a film that is basically designed to turn 90% of people away. <laughs> more or less, yeah. Um, and I just to say to everyone listening, I really can't recommend it more. It's like one of my top five films of all time. Oh, no, no. And maybe we're going too much on how unpleasant it is, even though that is like the primary feeling of it. But it's so, it's so engaging. It will just immerse you into this world and Carl McLaughlin's character again he's like he's like the all-american boy and it's such a good like deconstruction you know turn it on its head of that you know when he starts interacting with Isabella Rossellini's character um all this sort of repressed sexuality is there yeah yeah um and these themes of sexuality I don't think are exploitative or trying to be edgy for the sake of it um I think it's what makes this film really unique to be honest Oh yeah, same. Yeah, it's definitely not exploitative in the way some of the stuff we watch for this is. It's it's very done with a purpose and done to show Lynch's vision for what was happening there. It's brilliant. Like he goes from this, and you know now Lynch is like indie art house cred at, yeah, at absolute yeah. maximum again. Um, and then he goes and makes a television sh- um, pilot that gets turned <laughs> into a show. Uh, back then, directors, film directors did not work in television. Oh, television, God, no, especially no. American television, was regarded as, as like low art. Um, Lynch doesn't really see the difference between high and low art, nor does he see the difference between film and television. Nor does he care, I think. <laughs> no, and he makes, you know... And this is when the period when this experimental surrealist film director becomes like a mainstream American household name. Yeah. You know, he's on he's on all the talk shows and everything because Twin Peaks as a show, no one expected it, including ABC. No one expected it to blow up like it did. This was one of the first shows, but the first proper primetime mainstream show in America to do the continuous plot. And it yeah. led to a phenomena. You know, there's who shot JR, but then there's who killed Laura Palmer. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, how many times are we going to say best ever in this fucking episode? Best television <laughs> show ever made. Best television show ever made. It is untouchable. Like, I have some that are, I personally think are my favourite over it, but my God, this is untouchable as a TV show. My favorite... Just think about how much there is to say about, about this show. My, my favourite drama is Twin Peaks. My favourite comedy is The Simpsons, and I don't think those two are going to yeah. are going to change ever. The cast of characters are so... You know, you've got Jack Nance back forever. You've got Carl McLaughlin back, and Lynch initially thought McLaughlin was too young to play Cooper, but, man, he nails it. Oh, my you've God, got, does he nail it? You know, and... and Every single character in this film, in this show, is so like quirky and hyper-real. And mainstream America had never seen anything like this. He's really over-the-top three characters. And yet Lynch manages to... Lynch and Mark Frost, we must credit his co-writer Mark Frost as well. Yeah, they make yeah. him so deep. It's incredible. Every single character is somebody's favourite out there. Like, it's... It's unbelievable. It's the character they put in there, the things they talk about with each character, the way that there's this unbelievable mystery and crime drama running through it that's done in such a straight-laced way sometimes and absolutely blows the lid off everything at other times. It's unbelievable. It, it, what I, I think this is, like I said, this was the key that unlocked that tone of it's ironic, but it's not. Yeah. Like, this show was stylistically a parody of a soap opera. I mean, like a literal parody. But in that first episode, when the whole town is learning about the death of Laura Palmer, there's nothing funny about it. So it's telling you on the surface it's a parody, but it's not. This is a, it's a TV show with some of the most horrific moments ever and a proper horror cosmic terrifying horror with parody in there good humor especially from Cooper very very funny show very very, very funny. funny show i mean 
Cooper is absolutely hilarious from beginning to end. Like, Tibetan method, just... the donuts and the coffee. It's so yeah, funny. All the cops, they have just exactly. like pile of donuts and coffee with them anytime they're in a meeting. It's hysterical. And how many Blumen just constantly reference moments like the the um influence this had on pop culture and influence it had on entire studios entire game studios filmmakers like jesus it's can't be understated despite initially lasting two seasons for 25 years this is one of I think if you were making a top 10 most influential television shows of all time, this would be on that list. Probably nearer the 10, but still, like, it's... Yeah. This changed American television. Um, And I have seen people make the argument, I don't agree with it, that this was the first show of the golden age of TV. I don't agree with that at all. I think that starts with Oz, but this is like proto-golden age of television content. Yeah, absolutely. And its influence is still now, like today. Like we have Alan Wake 2 coming out the yeah. when we're about to release and like that is so Twin Peaks, it's unbelievable. Like it's it, Oh, the influence it had on games might even be more than the influence it had on television. Like the whole aesthetic of game hub worlds is basically Twin Peaks. I'm not just talking like deadly premonition here. Um there's a really great video on youtube called like 25 games influenced by by yeah. twin peaks and it's not like speculative it's like proven you know stuff that's Absolutely basically proven, like old yeah, zelda yeah. games the hub worlds were were just inspired by twin peaks and the characters like we're talking that level rep like games that went on to shape the entire medium were based on the world of twin peaks to some extent <laughs> and then you've got full studios like remedy putting out alan wait one and two control Quantum Break, all of those completely inspired by just the vibe and feel that that show brings. Like it's, it's so plain to see. Like the like it's there's so many shenanigans in the show. There's so much fun stuff that happens, but then the mystery of who killed Lorma Palmer like gripped America, and it oh is, yeah, it's so gripping. Is that's the thing? Like I said when I was introing it, like the full-on crime drama like mystery that is in this took over america so much like people were talking about her work and constantly about who killed laura palmer and what it was and i don't think a single person guessed <laughs> well that was that was what it was known as like this i believe the kind of saying in the industry of like the water cooler moment yeah, yeah. this show i am pretty sure invented that saying because people would go to work and be like did you watch twin peaks last night and they would discuss theories about twin peaks and that pushed the show to sort of astronomical ratings the season one finale did insanely well and the season one finale is very funny because they put every single cliffhanger they can think of in it to try and get <laughs> yes, their second season which they did yeah, and the second season is not as loved, and parts of it. The first half of the, or not even half, the second, the start of the second season to the end of the Laura Palmer arc, um, in terms of the original run of Twin Peaks, is Twin Peaks at its best, in my opinion. I think yes. they come back and they decide to really flesh out a lot of the characters. Like Bobby in season one is more of a villain character, and. Why in the first episode pretty of season evil two, in the first season <laughs> the first season episode of season two they really in very few in very quickly they really bring so much depth to him and i really he's one of he's got my favorite arc in twin peaks i think and yeah. um when he came back to season three what they did with his character was perfect oh um, yeah yeah season three oh my god but we're going to get to that at the end, I think. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Talking about studio interference with Lynch, this yep. was a victim of being too ahead of its time because I need not tell people that in 1990, catch-up television did not exist. It was not real, yes. <laughs> yeah, this show demanded more from the audience than probably any other American television show before it ever did. So even if you watched every episode... People were struggling, and then if you missed an episode, you were fucked. 
yeah, you were absolutely screwed. Like, you you had no way to go back. You just had to hear about it. Like, I, so yeah. people tuned in every single night to watch it. The thing is, the, the drop-off for the ratings was was really high because yeah. people every time you missed an episode, you just didn't get you back ever because it wasn't episodic. You couldn't just not be in for an episode. Um, and also people, as the Laura Palmer arc dragged on, because remember, people were, people weren't used to this. Like, the pilot for Twin Peaks has a a fucking five minutes on the end where they find Bob, who's a person in this, um, and shoot him and go, well, we solved that one. <laughs> uh, and it's like awful. And it's like, you know, it was in there under protest. Um, people were starting to think the show was nihilistic, which it's not. Um, but I can understand why, you know, it's not blow up. They, It's not the audience for blow up. It's people didn't want this to drag on forever, even though Lynch did. So Lynch is interfered with and told, you have to reveal who killed Laura Palmer. And yeah. I am fully with the network on this one. Yeah, as am I, I think. He he dragged it for way too long. <laughs> I didn't even know about dragged it for way too long. I think the reveal is fantastic. I mean, that's the highest rated episode of Twin Peaks on IMDb is the, is the, the last episode. Yeah. And they marketed it to no end. Like the newspaper ad said tune in this time to find out who killed Laura Palmer. And it's an incredible, incredible reveal. But then Lynch is like, well, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I don't it. care about this show anymore. In fact, he did leave a bit before then, um, into, after directing the first episode of season two. It did, and then yeah. the show is aimless. It's or not quite as aimless. Like, people do not like the comedy because like it's now an aimless weird comedy about the quirky people in the character and it's got like some of the worst story arcs in television history and I, again <laughs> yeah. i'm not being hyperbolic i really mean this nadine getting super strength what fucking james <laughs> fixing the fucking car is the worst thing i've ever sat uh, through on television what if, it's it's so weird that this unbelievable show has some of the just most dumbfounding <laughs> moments in it season two but lynch comes back to direct the season finale which yeah. is insane i mean you want to talk about influence of the show the red room the i mean everyone knows this image yeah and the the red room sequence or the black lodge sequence in the final is terrifying Oh yeah, absolutely horrifying. Like Twin Peaks has some of the best horror I've ever seen in it. Oh, like, it is it's terrifying. And people got it. People like this is really surreal horror. The back backwards talking people in the room. Uh, you know Laura Palmer, the, her screams. I mean, oh, what well, a good screamer. <laughs> what a good... No, it's incredible. Cheryl Lee is a fantastic actor, and we're gonna get to Fire Walk with Me after Wild at Heart. Yeah, like, yeah. In one of the greatest performances of all time. I'm, I'm actually going to stop qualifying everything by saying I'm not being hyperbolic. The, the best of all time. This. <laughs> Again, another best of all time. But I think, I don't know if this is controversial. Actually, I think it is controversial because people have very strong opinions on Twitter Peaks. But once it gets to the Wyndham Earl story arc in like the last six odd episodes, yeah. it gets really good again. I mean, Twin Peaks The Return, I think, offhandedly mentioned Wyndham Earl once, and that was that. But, like, Wyndham Earl is a very formidable villain. Yeah, very much. It actually gets decent, yeah, towards that end bit. But um, um, it's just who made it there to even see it when it was first showing. Like, It's true. I mean, this was this went from the biggest show ever to cancelled after two seasons. And yeah. famously... The famously, it ended with a monumental cliffhanger and the sentence, see you again in 25 years time. See you again time. in 25 years time. And one of uh, an unbelievably good cliffhanger. I finished Twin Peaks season two a couple of weeks after it was revealed season three happened. So <laughs> I would have lost my fucking mind if I didn't know that 25 years later, things would be revealed. It's happening again, you know. That that's so funny because obviously I'd seen it way before, like a oh long time, God. and and I was just like, "Oh, cool! I'm never gonna know what what was supposed to happen there." Like, I I like it's hard because I don't want to spoil specific arcs because obviously uh, we've never talked about a television show before because there's like 
things that happened, like there were some changes Carl McLaughlin made because he didn't think Cooper would do a certain thing. Yeah. Um, which is when Annie comes in as a character and I like Annie as a love interest, but like, I'm not a, I think the original idea of who he was going to get with was better, but Carl McLaughlin didn't think Coop would do that. But like, I think Twin Peaks at its best, which is like episode one to end of Laura's Thomas story arc, season two finale, and season three, unmatched. Yeah, completely. Completely unmatched. But you have to get through the in-between Laura Palmer arc to Wyndham Earl arc. Like, yeah, that is... Yeah, you have to get... I mean, painful. Painfully bad. It's not like, oh, it's just not as good as the previous ones. It really is painfully bad and everyone's aware of it. Yeah, you could tell Lynch is not there. Like, it's not his, <laughs> his thing at that point. Before we get on to what Lynch was doing while Twin Peaks was going to shit. This is the greatest television score ever. This and Cowboy Bebop. Oh, I yes, couldn't really pick yeah. between the two, but the Twin Peaks theme, every human being knows it. Yeah, even if you think you don't know it, you'll hear it and be like, oh yeah, I know that. Like, <laughs> bong, bong, bong. Bong, bong. Just that like dark jazz. There's a bit in uh, the pilot where Audrey is dancing in the in the, oh, in the yes, like, yeah. isn't this movie too isn't this music too dreamy dun, dun. like the Laura Palmer theme it's beautiful and there's uh, footage online from a BBC4 documentary about film score of Angelo Badalamenti talking about how he wrote the score and what Lynch was telling him while he was playing and it's a must watch if you even if you're not seen Twin Peaks because I guarantee you like Dom said you know the score even if you think you don't absolutely you have yeah. to watch it for like um, peek into creative genius. What an unbelievable TV show, Stan. <laughs> Dare I say, one of the best of all time, Dom. Uh, oh, we'll never say that again. <laughs> never, not in this entire episode. <laughs> Thank you for listening to part one of the David Lynch special for the Extreme Cinema Podcast. Stay tuned for part two next week, where we'll discuss Lynch's films from Wild at Heart to Twin Peaks The Return. You've been listening to the Extreme Cinema Podcast with Alexander Sternberg and Dom Loach. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing as it really helps us out. The original artwork for the podcast was done by George Arnold. The Extreme Cinema Podcast, available where all good podcasts are available.